0: Welcome back to the Hemingway List Podcast for Thomas Mann's Buddenbrooks Part 2, Chapter 2. We're finally getting to know Tony. How did you feel about her after this chapter? Anne de Bruyelles says, very enjoyable chapter. Tony's point of view was interesting, although I'm not sure I like her as of now. She, was, she has this very sweet yet cruel aura only children can have. I'm looking forward to get chapters from Thomas and Christian's point of view. Um, I like her as a character so far. I thought it was a fun chapter as well, and I'm glad we get to know Tony, and I love her. Like a, I love like a cheeky, you know, sort of little girl character. Reminds me a little bit of Natasha when you meet her in War and Peace. She's just so cheeky and spirited, although Tony does seem to have a bit more of a cruel, cruel streak and less kind of innocent. Um, but I like that too. I like that she's like that. Um, it kind of makes me feel like she's going to be a fun character to to uh, hang out with in the book. Raging thing about says again a lot to talk about. Sorry, a lot of talk about food, especially sweets. While in part one of the novel, sweet bread was at the surface level merely used to allude to the boys needing a doctor in the future. Now the hot chocolate Tony drinks every morning and her grandparents also ties to her being drawn to that feudal lifestyle, perhaps becoming a person that won't share the previous generation's work ethic and good manners anymore. Um, Swims in the Mone Fishy says, Here's some interesting facts about 19th century hot chocolate from the link below. It also includes a recipe. In the 19th century, the hot chocolate has was often prepared at home with a block of solid chocolate. The solid chocolate was made by roasting cocoa beans, husking the shells of them, and then grinding them until they formed a chocolate liqueur that would harden to a solid block of chocolate that could be grated. The Dutch process was of producing cocoa that we think of today wasn't invented until 1828, and it wasn't until 1879 that this conching process was invented that allowed for a smooth and creamy chocolate consistency that we think of in chocolate bars today. Before that, chocolate bars had a grittier texture than the smooth texture that we are used to now. Old-fashioned hot chocolate wasn't a sugary sweet kids' beverage like we often think of it. In some ways, it was more similar to coffee, with people adding milk or cream, and sometimes a bit of sugar to the bitter chocolate. Several old recipes don't even mention sugar at all, which would be sort of like the modern equivalent to having black coffee or having coffee with just cream but no sugar added. Yum. Well, that's how I have my coffee. I don't think sugar has needs to be in coffee, personally. I like the bitterness, though, so not everyone likes the bitterness of a coffee or a hot chocolate. Um, that raw cocoa that they use, like sort of unprocessed cocoa, is um, like super addictive, apparently. Um, and has a lot of, uh, caffeine, I believe, and something else, kind of like a a nootropic effect, a bit like nicotine or something, which is just super addictive and, um, not particularly good for you. At least I heard that one time on YouTube or somewhere along the way. Um, so, Tony is a bit of a little bit of a handful, bit of a monster, and I think that's going to make the book more fun, so hooray. Let's read chapter three. Jean Yark's Hofstede's verdict on the two sons of Consul Buddenbrook undoubtedly hit the mark. Thomas had been marked from the cradle as a merchant and future member of the firm. He was on the modern side of the old school with the boys at which the boys attended, An able, quick-witted, intelligent lad, always ready to laugh when his brother Christian mimicked the masters, which he did with uncanny facility. Christian, on the classical side, was not less gifted than Tom, but he was less serious. His special and particular joy in life was the imitation in speech and manners of a certain worthy Marcellus Stengel, who taught drawing, singing, and some other of the lighter branches. This her Marcellus Stengul always had a round half a round half dozen beautifully sharpened pencils sticking out of his back pocket, St- sorry, sticking out of his pocket, he wore a red wig and a light brown coat that reached nearly down to his ankles, also a choker collar that came up almost to his temples. He was quite a wit and loved to play with verbal distinctions as you were to make a line, my child, and what have you made? You have made a dash. In singing class, his favourite lesson was the forest green. When they sang this, some of the pupils would go outside in the corridor, and then when the chorus rose inside, we ramble so gaily through field and wood, those outside would repeat the last word very softly as an echo. Once Christian Bunbrook, his cousin Jorgen Kroger, and his chum Andreas Jisaki, the son of the fire commissioner, were deputed as echo. But when the moment came, they threw the coal scuttle downstairs instead and were kept in after school by her Stingle. in consequence. But alas, by the time her Stingle had forgotten their crime, he bade his housekeeper give them each a cup of coffee and then dismiss them. In truth, they were all admirable scholars, the masters who taught in the cloisters of the old school, once a monastic foundation, under the guidance of a kindly snuff-taking old head. They were to a man well-meaning and sweet-humoured, and they were one in the belief that knowledge and good cheer are not mutually exclusive. The Latin classes in the middle forms were heard by a former preacher, one pastor-shepherd, a tall man with brown whiskers and a twinkling eye, who joyed extremely in the happy coincidence of his name and calling and missed no chance of having the boys translate the word pastor. His favorite expression was boundlessly limited, but it was never quite clear whether this was actually meant for a joke or not. When he wanted to dumbfound his pupils altogether, he would draw in his lips and blow them quickly out again with a noise like the popping of a champagne cork. He would go up and down with long strides in his classroom, prophesying to one boy or another, with great vividness, the course which his life would take. He did this avowedly, with the purpose of stimulating their imaginations, and then he would set to work seriously on the business in hand, which was to repeat certain verses on the rules of gender and difficult constrictions. He had composed these verses himself with no little skill, and took much pride in declaiming them with great attention to rhyme and rhythm. Thus, past Tom's and Christian's boyhood, with no great events to mark its course. There was sunshine in the Buddenbrook family, and in the office everything went famously. Only now and again there would be a sudden storm, a trifling mishap like the following. Her Sturt, the tailor, had made a new suit for each of the Buddenbrook lads. Her Sturt lived in Belfounder Street. He was a master tailor, and his wife bought and sold old clothes, and thus moved in the best circles of society. Hurst Start himself had an enormous belly, which hung down over his legs, wrapped in a flannel shirt. The suits he made for the young masters Buddenbrook were at the combined cost of seventy marks, but at the boy's request he had consented to put them down in the bill at eighty marks and to hand them the difference. It was just a little arrangement among themselves, not very honorable indeed, but then not very uncommon either. However fate was unkind and the bargain came to light, her sturt was sent for to the consul's office, whither he came with a black coat over his woolen shirt, and stood there while the consul subjected Tom and Christian to a severe cross-examination, his head was bowed and his legs fell apart, far apart, his manner vastly respectful. He tried to smooth things over as much as he could for the young gentleman, and said that what was done, was done, and he would be satisfied with the seventy marks, but the consul was greatly incensed by the trick. He gave it long and serious consideration, yet finally ended by increasing the lad's pocket money, for, was it not written, lead us not into temptation. It seemed probable that more might be expected from Thomas Buddenbrook than from his brother Christian. He was even-tempered, and his high spirits never crossed the bounds of discretion. Christian, on the other hand, was inclined to be moody, guilty at times of the most extravagant silliness at others he would be seized by a whim, which could terrify the rest of them in the most astonishing way. The family are at table eating dessert and conversing pleasantly, the while, suddenly, Christian turns pale and puts back on his plate the peach into which he has just bitten his round, deep-set eyes above the two large nose have opened wider. I will never eat another peach, he says. Why not, Christian? What nonsense? What's the matter? Suppose I accident- accidentally, suppose I swallowed a stone and it stuck in my throat so I couldn't breathe and I jumped up strangling horribly and all of you jump up, ugh. Oh. And he suddenly gives a short groan full of horror and affright, and starts up in his chair and acts as if he were trying to escape. The Frau Consul and Ida Jungmann actually do jump up. Heavens, Christian, you haven't swallowed it, have you? or his whole appearance suggests that he has. No, says Christian slowly. No, he is gradually quieting down. I only mean, suppose I actually had swallowed it. The console has been pale with fright, but he recovers and begins to scold. Old Johann bangs his fist on the table and forbids any more of these idiotic practical jokes, but Christian for a long, long time eats no more peaches. All right. There we go, chapter three. We're getting introduced uh, introduced to the other kids, the other Buddenbrook children, which is cool. I enjoyed that. All right, thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.